Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. I'm on a train skimming through the Yorkshire countryside and the cooling towers of Drax Power Plant. It's the biggest power plant in the United Kingdom. The cooling towers are just looming over the horizon. That's my colleague, Hal Hodson. Hal reports on technology for The Economist, and he's been on an intriguing adventure. Anyway, I'm coming to see one of the turbines. And the reason that I want to see a turbine is because I want to get right to the heart of the electricity grid. And every electron in the electricity grid, and this is the electricity that switches on your lights or runs your washing machine, every electron in that grid, everywhere from your plug to the motor in your washing machine all the way to the power plant is vibrating back and forth 50 times a second. But that vibration is created in the power plant at the turbine. And I want to go and stand right next to it to put my hand on it to feel what that feels like because there is no other way with human senses to feel what the electricity grid feels like. Unlike Hal, few of us ever take the time to appreciate the complexity of this vast system and the marvel of engineering. The electric grid is the ultimate foundation on which modern society has been built. Grids around the world have served us for generations. But today, as the world faces the challenge of climate change, electric grids are looking increasingly archaic. A few things need to change. First, the way electricity is generated needs to be deeply decarbonized. Energy from the sun and the wind will become essential, and eventually they'll be our main sources of electricity generation. On top of that, too, in a net-zero future, everything we use energy for needs to be electrified, from the transport sector to home heating and even industrial processes. Entirely replacing fossil fuels in these areas requires a revolution, and it will rely on vastly higher amounts of electricity being available at the flick of a switch via the grid. All of that amounts to one thing. The electric grid is in desperate need of a revamp and fast. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, filling in for Alloc again this week. Today, we'll follow that trail of electrons all the way from Hal's vibrating hand to my washing machine to understand exactly how the energy system works. But upgrading electric grids is no easy task. We'll be diving deep into the technology that will enable this revolution. And we'll explore how to overcome those technical, political, and societal challenges to enable the clean, green future that the world desperately needs. 
To do all of that, I'm joined by Hal Hudson himself. Hello, Hal. Hello, Ken. Thanks for having me on Babbage. Of course. Seems like old times. Absolutely. Let's get into it. Let's do it. And let's start by understanding what the problem is that the grids are facing. Hal, why do electric grids need an upgrade? Currently on the planet, about 20% of all energy that is used is electricity. That means that 80% of it is fossil fuels. And currently, those fossil fuels are used for your car, your stove, heavy industry, making things like fertilizer, which is obviously completely fundamental to humans remaining alive on Earth, the numbers that they currently are. And all of that needs to be switched over to electricity. So you have two problems. First, you've got to make all of the grid zero carbon. Secondly, you've got to expand the grid to eat that 80% that we were just talking about. And so what this amounts to is just a dramatic expansion of the overall size of the grid. Basically, the energy used on the planet are huge, something in the region of $32 trillion by 2050. That's just grid. It's not even including wind farms and solar panels. It's just expanding the capacity of the grid so it can move all of that energy to where it needs to go, to the factories, to Ken's house, to the underfloor heating or whatever it is. Okay, so let's understand what the grid actually is. How does my washing machine link up to the energy system? Right. So all washing machines and all turbines are connected to all other washing machines and turbines in a single electrical circuit in which the electrons are vibrating back and forth in the wires at 50 times a second. And that vibration is uniform everywhere. It's like a synchronous national and international dance that every electron is doing at the same time. And as they dance, they are driving, they are doing the work, they are spinning the motor in your washing machine. Old-fashioned washing machines were actually directly sort of geared to that 50 times a second frequency. New washing machines just have electric motors in them that convert it into a totally different form of energy that allow them to do the work. So they're decoupled at that point. And the whole grid is millions of those connections all on the same circuit all with the energy flowing in one giant loop that we're all sitting on. We're sitting on it right now as we record this. The electricity that's going through the microphones and into the machines that are helping us do this, it's all part of the same circuit as your washing machine. So when I turn on my washing machine, I'm adding a bit of load to the grid. Now, of course, it makes very little difference to the large and vastness of the grid scale. But how does the grid balance the load when there's a surge in demand? Like, when everyone puts on the kettle during halftime during a football match. Yeah, so you put your finger on it. The difference is between individual behavior and collective behavior. It doesn't matter if one person turns on a washing machine or a kettle. The amount of extra load added to the grid added to that one circuit is not very meaningful. But when everybody wakes up in the morning and turns on their lights and runs their dishwasher or does whatever they do in their homes and gets to work and boils the kettle for their coffee... That is a big amount of load. And what the energy system has to do is just produce more energy to meet that demand. And the key thing is that it all has to be done in real time. You don't get to wait. You don't get to say, I'll do this in a minute. It has to be there at the moment that everybody presses go on their kettle. But the law of large numbers helps us and the statistics are pretty good. Well, and this is one of the reasons why big grids are helpful is because what's not predictable, and you with your data brain will know this, what's not predictable for you or me, we may turn on the kettle at different times every morning, is deeply predictable when you're talking about people in the United Kingdom all pretty much turn on their kettles at the same time. But let's take this back to my washing machine. Where does this energy originally come from? So your noisy vibrating washing machine is directly coupled, sort of literally, physically, to a spinning turbine somewhere in the United Kingdom. That turbine is being spun by the boiling of water and the generation of steam, and that's then pushed through pipes and directed at a 
blade on a shaft which spins around at 3,000 revolutions per minute. That's 50 times per second. And basically, the grid transforms the burning of fuel into the doing of work somewhere else on the planet. Usually relatively close, but as we will see, often further and further away from the place the energy is being generated. Okay, and that's why you went to the Drax power station in the north of England, to feel that original vibration for yourself. We heard you on the train at the start of the show, hoping that you'd be able to feel that 50 hertz vibration in your hand. Did you succeed? I did succeed. Going to Drax is a bit like going to the sort of source of the Nile, but for energy nerds. And it helped me to understand what it is we're talking about. Myself and our producer Jason were given a tour around the power plant by Bruce Heppenstall, who runs the thing. Often electricity feels very sort of amorphous, very abstract. But when you go and you feel the heat from stuff being burned, you realize what the energetic equations are. You realize what's happening. What we're going to go and look at, we've got a high-pressure turbine mm -hmm. at one end, at the far end there. Yeah. That's the steam in there is about 560 degrees C. Standing next to it and then sort of looking out onto the grid and towards your washing machine helped me to get my head around it and hopefully will help listeners get their heads around it too. It's already pretty shaky, right? It's going to get quite a bit shakier outside. <laughs> It's kind of like being inside this enormous cyberpunk building. And there's no humans in it, weirdly, because it's all quite automated. Yeah, so that's the entire length of the turbine hall there, 430 meters set out in entirety. It's a big room. It's, it's absolutely huge. This is the beginning of the grid, that yeah. first turbine. Absolutely, yeah. How much power is being generated today? Today? Uh, enough power for about three and a half million homes in this turbine hall. If all six units are running, we could generate power for about six million, which is about peak demand between six and eight percent of total UK demand. So explain to me the scale of electrical grids. Are they national or they're pretty vast, aren't they? They're pretty vast. One way of thinking they're the world's biggest machines. The biggest one is the Chinese grid. There's actually two in China, but the big one is called State Grid. And that covers a billion or so people and many terawatts of generation. The one that is kind of the easiest to find out about that's huge is the European grid called CESA, the Central European Synchronous Area, which recently had Ukraine joined into it and was one of the reasons that the Ukrainians were able to sustain their electricity grid even while it was being bombarded by Russians. You lose a substation here, you pull in more power from Moldova. So yeah, grids tend to be huge. They've been getting bigger in the last few decades, and that trend is going to continue. One question is whether they'll be big and all one circuit as they are in Europe. That's all the same frequency. It's all those electrons jiggling around at exactly the same speed in the same way. Or whether new technologies will just start connecting up disparate grids without needing to sync them up. And that's what's called high voltage direct current transmission. And that's proving extremely useful because it allows you to connect grids in ways that are cheaper, basically. So grids are incredibly complicated things. But they work pretty well. It's very complicated. It works well in the sense that most people never think about it. You flick your light switch and the lights come on. You start boiling your kettle and a few minutes later you got your cup of tea. But the actual work of making it happen is intricate and there are lots of moving parts. There are lots of people making decisions about whether to open or close this particular bit of the circuit so as to allow energy to flow. 
And it's different in different countries, but in the UK, there is one organization called National Grid ESO, which kind of does the data side of it. They actually balance the grid. And then there's another company, confusingly, also called National Grid without the ESO, and they kind of run the infrastructure. So they run the electricity cables and the connections to the power plants, and ESO tells them what to do, and they do it. So ESO is the brain, National Grid is the body. When I was in Drax, being given a tour by Bruce, we saw this in action. So I make a floor room. Yeah. So this is the, uh, the heart of what we do here. And uh, basically we've got six units control from here. So we'll have a, a walk around. Is and, each uh, one a unit? Each one of these is six, one, six, six, yep, 660 megawatts. So okay. about a million homes per unit. Yeah. And uh, we'll be controlled by one unit controller inside. Um, and uh, then there'll be one outside. And when you see the size of the plant, you'll see how much automation there is. Yeah. All highly automated. Yeah. The only place where there are any humans is in the control room, and it's pretty much exactly what you'd imagine a control room to be. like. Lots of big screens, people sitting in chairs, watching lines that are mostly extremely steady go across the screen. And if that line changes, then they all leap into action and they've got a problem. So, oh, yours is pretty good, actually. So, so basically the target load you see there is yeah. absolutely bang on. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, 645 megawatts. Yeah. Are you making tiny little changes to keep this line on its line? Is that is that a job well done? Or yeah, well, it's a job well done as far as National Grid's concerned, because okay. obviously we're giving them exactly what they ask yeah. for. Well, you're kind of the lines. air traffic controller for this unit. You're yes. you're watching everything and making sure nothing weird is happening. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So watching in auto and then able to intercede if there's an alarm, and then we need to we'll just let. Uh, yeah, they would carry on, but yeah, they see a page of alarms there. So you will see at different times of the day the frequency change as more demand goes on or demand comes off. Mm. National Grid is responsible for balancing the system. Yeah. In in times of high generation and low demand, they'll ask us to, to, to lower our output. Yeah. And then in times of high demand, we may well then be asked to, to increase generation. We saw new demand coming online and new resource from Drax needing to be spun Good, up for yes. this. Yes, this, this unit here hasn't run since probably December, I think we were asked to run this unit. Okay. Um, so yeah, the unit's up minimum load now and just so running up. So 300 megawatts is as low as it goes, like yeah, it can't is, really burn any less, less no, we, hot. But that's still half a million homes. Yeah. So yeah, at 49.94 there's slightly more demand than there is generation. Yeah. So, They'll be managing that, it's very close. And uh, they will have taken into account this unit coming on though today, maybe scale some, something else back. Yeah. And then when this one comes off, when it runs out of yeah. fuel, then they'll bring somebody else on for the yeah. T-Sun peak. Okay, Hal, at the start of the show, you said that one of the challenges is hooking up renewables to the grid, like solar power and wind power. Now, I would have thought that it would be as simple as just connecting the wires from a different source. So it's no longer a gas boiler turbine, but power from a solar farm. Wouldn't that just be the way things would work? So in one sense it is. You could do that, and it might work for a bit. Remember that it's all on one circuit, and that circuit has the same properties as it feeds into your washing machine as it does when I'm standing there next to the turbine in Drax. The problem comes when the solar panels that you've installed in your field in Shropshire or whatever, they feed electricity into the grid in a very different way to how the turbine feeds electricity into the grid. The turbine is always spinning at the same speed, and that spin is controlled by human beings who want to make sure that the characteristics of the signal in the grid and the spinning of the turbine are always the same. The solar panels 
It's just photons hitting silicon in the panel and spitting out an electron. Just multiply that by millions of times in a given panel. What that creates is just a steady stream of what's called direct current. There is no alternation. There's no frequency. There's no 50 hertz rhythm to that electricity. So when that gets fed onto the grid, traditionally what's had to happen is you have to have electronics sitting between the solar panels and the grid, which do a thing called grid following. They say, what's happening on the grid? Okay, we're going to shape this flow of electrons to match what's happening on the grid. And the problem with this is that if the grid started to become out of balance for some reason, say a power plant fell off or us and our friends all boiled more kettles than was ever expected for this given day in May, you would have a frequency fluctuation that went too far up. And so under the traditional model where the solar panels have this electronics that are following what's happening on the grid, the solar panels will make that worse because they'll just keep following. They'll be like, oh, it's 50.8 hertz. We need to spit it out at 50.8 hertz. Oh, 50.9. And there's a feedback loop there that's bad. And one of the big, big changes is that the power electronics are becoming more advanced. And instead of dumbly following what's happening on the grid, the human engineers can now say, okay, if the frequency is going up on that grid, on that single circuit, you need to spit out a frequency that's a bit lower to bring it back into balance. And I guess the other problem, the classic problem, is the intermittency problem in which you don't get much energy when the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing. Yeah, this is a whole other category of problem, and it pops up on many different timescales. The most obvious one is day and night, right? When there's no sun, there's no solar power. But it also pops up on a seasonal basis. In the winter, there is more wind and less sun. In the summer, there is more sun and a bit less wind. And it also pops up in a kind of random the weather is just doing this this week way. And this is called Dunkelflaute, which is a German word. It means the dark doldrums. And we've all experienced them, right? Because it's when it's dark and still, and it's kind of like a little two weeks of really, from the energy system's perspective, bad winter, which is very difficult to deal with if you have a bigger and bigger proportion of energy being generated by renewables. And the key takeaway here is that in the old model, generation of energy, the production of energy onto the grid, that was utterly controllable. Humans could do what they wanted. They could ramp it up, they could ramp it down. And bear in mind, demand changes. So you ramp up production to meet demand. You ramp it down when demand goes away. The new system, demand is still fluctuating all the time. People turn their kettles on and off throughout the day. But supply is also fluctuating. So now you have this two-body problem that is much harder to solve. You need to solve it with clever algorithms and predictions, and it's making the energy system into something much more marketized and, I don't know, maybe more akin to predicting the weather. And in fact, predicting the weather is a massively important part of the energy system now. We're going to pick up on that grid upgrading challenge shortly. But first, I've got to ask you, what have you been enjoying when you're reading The Economist lately? I have been enjoying so many things. The thing I want to mention, though, is a thing which hasn't been published yet, which I just read in draft. I, I hope that's kosher on the podcast. It's the next technology quarterly that's coming out. It is an absolutely wild read. It's not like anything that we publish very regularly. I thoroughly recommend listeners subscribe just so that they can read that. Let me ask you, when is it going to appear? It is going to appear, I believe, in the middle of June. So, you know, even if you're a little bit sluggish on your subscription skates, you should have time. Hal, thank you so much. Now, I should mention that your wonderful technology quarterly special report on electric grids can be found on The Economist website or the app. And we've put in a link in the show notes. Listeners can read that and all of our journalism by subscribing to The Economist. To get your first month free, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. And if you're already a subscriber, thank you very much. Hal and I will be back in just a moment. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today on Babbage, we're exploring how to future-proof electric grid systems. Guiding me through the show is Hal Hodson, one of the Economist Technology Journalists. Hal, you just outlined the problems with electric grids in their traditional form. But what technology is needed to make the grids ready for expansion for more renewables? So there's a few different things. Probably the most important is HVDC, and that stands for High Voltage Direct Current. This is basically just a form of cable, which is much more efficient at sending energy over long distances. But it is also a kind of an energy conversion technology in a way. The old forms of HVDC, it's been around for hundreds plus years. It's been around since the beginning of electricity. And in the very beginning, the the way it worked was these giant sort of electromechanical conversion systems. And they broke all the time and they weren't very reliable. And so they never really took off. But the latest way of doing this, surprise, surprise, just uses chips. And now that HVDC systems run on power electronics, you can squash them into much smaller areas. And this has been really important, for instance, in offshore wind, where you can fit that all on one offshore platform. And being able to do this is key to connecting the sort of far-flung resources like wind and solar to the grid, which traditionally hasn't been built out to those places. Traditionally, the grid just goes from power plants relatively near to places where humans are to the places where the humans are. Now the grid needs to go into the ocean and into the desert. And having a technology which can efficiently send energy over long distances is really useful for that. And remind me, as like a refresher, is there an issue of where the source of the electricity comes from because the electrons will sort of like lose their electricityness? their potency over a long period of space. Yeah, sort of. This is one of the reasons why high voltage direct current is so useful, because if you try and send energy long distances using alternating current, those vibrations start to get in their own way over a long period of time. It's called the skin effect. And so it's basically easier to send just a single line of electrons that aren't going back and forth than it is to send this sort of jostling dance of electrons that are moving around and getting in each other's way, essentially. To really get to the bottom of what it is that HVDC does for the grid, I spoke to Gerhard Salga. He's the chief technology officer at Hitachi Energy. They're one of the main companies that build these machines, these devices. And he explained how decarbonization and the expansion of the grid to meet demand is going to change the plumbing of the whole system. It starts with the fundamental change, which is happening from going from a predictive demand in the past and a predictive generation option in the past to a less predictive generation, of course, with the renewables. And uh, then also on the demand side, we will see much more uh, fluctuations and dynamics. And uh, that means this needs to get managed by the technologies in between. 
And one of those technologies is high-voltage direct current systems, or HVDC lines. These are cables that can transport electricity over much longer distances, but can also work with the traditional alternating current electricity grid. So walk me through that technology and how it's changed recently. The reason why HVDC is such a fantastic technology for serving this energy transition is because of its new technology developments and flexibility it provides. So HVDC is really the preferred technology when it comes to transporting electric energy over uh, long distances. But not only that one, it can then serve in a great way any type of renewable integration, either from a far distance, but also from being closer to the load centers, because it also can provide support functionalities to stabilize the AC system. For example, by compensation providing reactive power. But then it can also be served as a very compact infeed into city centers where more and more higher loads are needed in, in mega cities. Now, one way of explaining why this matters is to talk about the sort of previous generation of these huge electricity cables. And one of the main places that those were built, Gerhard, was in China, right? The older generation ones. My understanding is that because of the way they work, they basically need a power plant at the front of them to turn them on and off. And to be clear, Hitachi Energy built those older systems as well. The difference with the new generation is that they no longer need that. They can be switched with a computer instead of switched with a power plant, which is kind of a dramatic way of thinking about it. Yes, your, your description is really describing this development very, very nicely. So a lot of the installations are what we call grid-following converters. And there is a physical connection in between the speed how these generators rotate to the frequency of the AC system, the 50 hertz or the 60 hertz around the world. Now, with less and less of those big generators, just imagine the solar and also the wind turbines, they cannot provide any longer a stable frequency linked physically to rotational mass. So what we are doing there in the modern generation of HVDC and power electronics in general is that we are introducing a technology which is called grid forming converters with the software functionality you are creating this 50 or 60 hertz respectively and by that you are replacing this functionality of the former rotating masses and big machines and then the power electronics can take over the forming of the grid Gerhard, in just a few words, what will this grid look like? And to the extent that any normal people interact with it, what will it feel like to interact with it? I, I guess, to, to make clear what I'm asking, the, the current closest proximity to the feeling of interacting with the grid is sort of either plugging things in or driving past a pylon on your way somewhere and thinking there's a pylon. How is this future grid going to be different? So from a 
end consumer perspective, in a best case, the end consumer doesn't feel a difference. Then for the operators of the power system, of course, there is a lot of changes because they need to manage much, much more electricity going over the system. We are estimating around up to three times more electrical energy flow across the total system than in the past. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity of uh, moving this energy system towards a really sustainable one. And that is, I think, a fantastic motivation which we all have. Well, Gerhard, thank you again very much for coming on Babbage. Thank you very much, Hall, uh, for giving me the opportunity here to explain some aspects of the energy transition. Delighted to have you. Thanks, Gerhard. Thanks, Hal. That was totally fascinating. Now, Kant, in this era of Dunkelflauta scenario, places in Europe band together with the HVDC cables they just talked about to ensure that renewable energy is distributed to the places that need it so there's no more need to burn the fossil fuels. Well, absolutely. You can try and do that. And you want to do as much as possible of that, of distributing the real-time energy where it's needed. But the problem is that, say there's a big Dunkelflauta over Germany, but the wind's blowing in the Bay of Biscay off the coast of France. The problem is France needs energy too. France is never going to be able to supply sort of 70% of Germany's electricity needs in a given moment. And so even though it can help, France can send some electricity to Germany, some excess, you're never going to be in a situation where one part of the system is able to supply all of the demand for another part of the system. So the systems they need to be sort of, I guess, interconnected but independent. And that's where the power to gas stuff comes in. And this is where you use electricity to generate hydrogen, and then you burn that in a turbine. But absolutely, you want as much interconnection and as much sending real-time energy from one place to another as you can possibly have. And there are some scenarios where if you are taking energy from a place that doesn't have huge needs and sending it to somewhere where it does, you will see interconnection being a huge, huge part of it. The biggest version of this is a project called x where they're going to build a huge solar farm in the desert in Morocco and then build a 3,600-kilometer cable to Devon in the United Kingdom, and it'll be like having a giant power plant in Devon, except it's just a cable connected to Morocco. This is a hugely ambitious project. It may or may not come off. No one's ever built a cable that long under the ocean. The longest one is 720 kilometers, so they're going three times longer. But there are reasons to think it will work. And you can transport energy such a far distance you can transport it at a very long distance. The longest ones at the moment are in China. They're about 3,000 kilometers long. They use an older version of the technology, and often they are not running at all because there's various technicalities about even getting them switched on requires an entire power plant at one end to kind of activate the line and get the electricity flowing. But they have enough capacity to power all of London, and they are tapping into wind and solar resources in the desert in northwest China. And so the technology does already exist. It's just the current modern, up-to-date, flexible version hasn't been deployed at that kind of scale yet. Now, Gerhard's point about being able to seamlessly operate it within the 50 or 60 hertz grid system, it can't be that easy. No, it's not that easy. It's a seamless sort of erases a, a lot of work that a lot of different people are doing. And there's currently actually an interim technology that's being used to keep the grid stable up until the point where the whole thing is inverter-based and the whole thing is run off power electronics. And this is basically just 
install a giant spinning wheel that weighs about 40 tons in a place where you need that inertia on the grid and you power it using electricity from the grid and it just sits there spinning and providing inertia. And the reason that that's useful is that when something happens on the grid, if a generator switches offline or demand spikes unpredictably, that inertia is available instantly because of that physical connection. So it's kind of like having the turbine without the gas. It's just sitting there spinning and it's helping you keep the grid up in this sort of transition phase where you're moving from a grid that's defined by rotational masses into a grid that's defined by digital technology, essentially. Okay, so right now, lots of our power is generated by burning fuel, creating steam, which basically spins a massive thing that generates electricity in the way that you explained earlier on the show, like at the Drax power station. Also, more turbines can be quickly fired up if they're needed, which keeps the grid stable. But they generate a lot of pollution. The intermediate phase is also happening now, where more wind and solar energy is contributing to grids via these HVDC cables. So giant wheels are being spun, which can quickly be transformed into electricity when and where it's needed. That also keeps the grid stable while we're undergoing the energy transition. But in the future, where all of our energy comes from renewables, engineers will surely want to move towards a system that's only controlled by software so grids don't need this mechanical inertia system to keep them stable. What is likely to end up happening over time is that because you have these more controllable power electronic ways of pushing electricity onto the grid, that you slowly can get away from this sort of terrorism of spinning masses that define everything. And you slowly start to be able to control it yourself. And first, what that's going to look like is emulation. So the solar and wind, which doesn't come in with this nice 50 hertz pattern, it's going to be manipulated directly by humans using software to mimic that 50 hertz pattern. But eventually, as you take more and more turbines off the grid, the world will probably start to look a bit like, okay, why are we emulating this anymore? We can maybe relax these constraints. And that's the really exciting thing about this report is that if you have an electricity grid, which is less finicky, less requiring of, it must be this exact frequency or everything will break. If you have a more robust grid and you can plug and play things, you can churn out more commodity components that have lower tolerances and you have a lower cost system and then you have a nice feedback loop which helps us instead of hurts us. But that's science fiction. That's not here now. It's not here now, but it's starting to look that way. If you look at the grid in Hawaii, which is not interconnected, it's a small grid, doesn't really have much fossil fuel on there anymore. It's lots of solar panels and a little bit of wind. It's almost an entirely inverter-based grid. That's those power electronics between the generation and the grid. And that frequency on that grid wanders way more. It's much more flexible because it's all electronics and digital control. It's not spinning mass that will break if the frequency wanders. And the reason that the spinning mass will break is that, think about a bicycle. If you've ever been on a fixed gear bike where the pedals turn at the same rate as the wheels, if you go down a hill and you take your feet off the pedals and they spin really fast, if you try and put your feet back on those pedals, you'll either break the pedals or your feet or both. And that is the analogy with the old system with the spinning masses. If the spinning masses try and sort of connect with a grid signal that is out of sync with them, something somewhere will break, either on the grid or in the spinning mass. The new way is basically you get algorithms to look down at the spinning pedals beneath their feet and calculate exactly how to put their feet back on in a way that optimizes the whole system to allow it to keep going. And you know, as a human maybe could do if they were a very good cyclist, but these algorithms are very, very good cyclists when it comes to running grids. And so the future does look like a much more controllable and hopefully cheaper 
grid. Okay. I love the vision. I'm all in. But from what you're saying, it sounds like progress is slow. Why is it? It's slow because the grid is a very regulated machine. It is a natural monopoly. If you build one set of electricity lines, the marginal returns to building another one are not good. And so most places just have one sort of grid. And the regulations up to this point have focused on keeping the price of the grid low, so the cost you pay to maintain that infrastructure, keeping that low and keeping the lights on. And now there's this third and overwhelming requirement that it change really quickly. And this is really one of those, you've got three, pick two areas. It's very, very difficult to change a system that's been optimized for stability and low price because what you need to change, you need to move fast and risk-breaking things, and you also need to spend a lot of money. Neither of those things are commensurate with low prices and stable supply. And so slowly but surely, the grid regulators around the world have been updating their rules, so to speak, to try and allow for grid connection to happen more quickly. But this has been difficult. There's currently somewhere in the region of two terawatts of generation in a queue in America on the various grids in America to connect. And to put this in perspective, Britain at any one moment uses about 26 gigawatts of power. So America has about a thousand times as much power waiting to connect as Britain uses at any one moment. So there's these huge backlogs, these huge queues everywhere waiting to connect to the grid. And that's just the grid side of it. There's a whole other side to do with building the infrastructure in the first place, getting the permits and the planning permission. And that is meeting a lot of resistance that in some ways is even harder to overcome because there's no kind of technical tweak to allow people to connect more easily. You just have to convince communities to allow these things to be built in their neighborhoods. It's also incredibly maddening because it's not clear we're going to get there because the cost is enormous. The cost is enormous. And I think if it was just a question of cost, maybe we could be a bit more optimistic about this happening. But the problem is that it's also a question of politics. And if you look at America today, then you overlay a map of what the grid sort of needs to be under various scenarios. And even under scenarios where lots of helpful things happen that mean you don't need to build a lot of this big infrastructure. America's not a tolerant place for building interstate electricity cables or building wind farms. There's the famous case of Cape Wind off of Cape Cod in Massachusetts, which was one of the first offshore wind farms proposed in the whole world, still hasn't been built some 15 years later or so. Why? Because all the rich people who live in Cape Cod were like, absolutely not. We're not having ugly wind farms in our front garden, i.e. the Cape. We don't want that. And they won. They absolutely won. And they're all environmentalists as well. They are all, they are, are all probably <laughs> at least nominally environmentalists as well. And that gets to the cover line that we put out a few weeks ago, which was, if you want to be an environmentalist, you probably need to think a bit harder about building these kinds of things, even if they maybe don't fit in with some of your more parochial environmental paradigms. But one of the fascinating things about the technology is that it can help solve that problem too, that political problem. And because HVDC allows for transmission of electricity over longer distances, it lets you do things like put your wind farms over the horizon in the sea. And you just have a slightly longer HVDC cable to transmit that electricity with relatively low loss. And it solves this political problem of needing to build infrastructure. HVDC lets you build infrastructure in ways that are less visible to people and therefore face less political resistance. Hug a pylon, not a tree. Hug a pylon, not a tree. So a lot of great technology coming down the pike, but a lot of challenges still to overcome. 
Hal, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Ken. Also, our thanks to Bruce Heppenstahl and Gerhard Zalga. And thank you for listening to Babbage. Find all of Hal's in-depth reporting on electric grids on The Economist website or on our app. There's plenty more geeky details for you there. And don't forget, there's just over a week left to apply to join the Babbage team. We're looking for a brilliant assistant producer to work on the show. The link to apply is in the show notes. And make sure you do so by May 15th. The Babbage Podcast is produced by Jason Hoskin, with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. Alloc will be back next week, but for now, I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, where when there's Dunkelflaute, I take vitamin D. This is The Economist. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.